0: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I'm grateful to have a recent BYU graduate who gave the main commencement speech in April of 2023 at BYU. The title of that speech is, In Zion, There Are No Imposters or Frauds. We All Belong. And as I listened to that speech by Samuel Benson, I said to myself, Samuel Benson, I hope will come on the podcast and give that speech for our listeners and give more of the story, the principles that he shares. So Samuel is in my home. Welcome to the podcast, Samuel.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Richard. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, the speech will be part of the podcast. So at some point you'll listen to the speech. It's about...
1: It's nine minutes or so, eight or nine minutes.
0: So the podcast obviously going to be longer. Um, it's a terrific speech. and um, But first, maybe you can just introduce yourself to us, Sam. Let us know where you grew up. you um, I know you served a mission. You're a recent be- graduate of BYU. You could let our initi- um, listeners know what you graduated and stuff like that. Sure.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I uh, i was born here in Salt Lake City, but grew up between um, Southwestern Virginia and Ephraim, Utah. Went to Manti High School. Um, graduated there in from, from anti in 2017. And then I served a mission in, in Boston, Spanish speaking Boston, um, which is a place that I love and, and people that I love dearly. And, uh, I got back in 2019, attended BYU. And, and my goal was to be an immigration lawyer, uh, just because of the transformative experience of a mission and, and being exposed to different people in different situations. And in a lot of ways, having my eyes opened, um, to, to the struggles of, of the immigrant community in our, in our country, I decided that's what I wanted to do for a living. Uh, so I I decided to take a major in sociology with Spanish as a secondary major. Um, but because of a number of different circumstances, I ended up falling in love with journalism, uh, and decided to keep my major as sociology and Spanish, but then to pursue journalism professionally. So I got a job an internship and then later a, a staff position at the Deseret News. And I've been there for about three years now. Uh, and that's the goal is to pursue journalism, political journalism. But it's been just a wonderful ride. I loved my time at BYU. I loved my time at Deseret. Um, and I'm excited for, you know, whatever comes next.
0: Talk about, it's unusual to have a full-time job at Desert News at a young age. And you've had that job for a while. That's maybe helpful for listeners. Um, you've had a dream to do something like that. Tell our listeners a little bit about um, that journey in your life.
1: Sure. A lot of it was just... um circumstance. Uh, (laughs) I can't think of a better word for it. Happenstance, circumstance, coincidence. I needed an internship during the summer of 2020. So right at the start of the pandemic Uh, and not a lot of places were hiring and places that were doing remote work were kind of, it was just a tumultuous time as we all know. Um, And my heart was set on immigration law, but I had some experience from when I was younger in, in journalism. And I saw a listing for an opinion internship at the Deseret News on their opinion desk. And I'd never written an op-ed or a column in my life, but I thought, you know, why not? Let's, let's try it out. And I happened to be working at BYU as a researcher for Hal Boyd, who was in the the school of family life there. Uh, really incredible guy. Yeah. Law school grad, really sharp guy knows family law inside and out. Um, but he was, he was working on a book and I was one of his researchers and he really encouraged me and said, yeah, you should, you should, Apply for this internship. And he had worked at the Desert News previously. And so he, you know, said, put in a good word or whatever. So I owe him a great deal. Ended up getting the internship. And then at the end of the internship, just because of a uh, kind of personnel situation, they had an opening on the opinion team. Um, so I decided to stay on. They gave me an opportunity to stay on, which is really wonderful. And I'm so grateful for that. And stayed on as an opinion writer for about six months. And then Hal ended up coming from BYU back to the Deseret News to head up their national team. And he brought me on as a politics reporter. So I've been covering politics for about two years now. And come August, I'll be covering the presidential election for Deseret on the trail, covering the Republican candidates, and then next fall covering uh, the general election. So that'll consume the next 18 months or so for me.
0: Consume's a good word.
1: Yeah, I think it'll consume a lot of us, unfortunately. But hopefully if uh, you tune into the coverage at Deseret News you'll get something different and perhaps more nuanced, more fair, maybe more insightful than uh, a lot of the other things coming out from a tumultuous.
0: My wife and I have had the chance to meet Hal Boyd and just a terrific man and doing good things in our community. Um, I don't know if you did this, you're going to talk about this in your speech about imposters or frauds, but did you feel like when you saw that job opening at Deseret, did you feel like Did you, were you positive and says, I can do this? Or were you like a lot of us says, no, I'm young enough, I'm too young, or I don't have that experience, or I'm, or did you just have confidence that you could uh, apply? That's
1: a great question. I think we all pass through times where uh, we question whether we're qualified for something, especially in the society in which we live, where so much is uh, chalked up to merit or um, our our skills or our experiences. I mean, as a young person, you're told in order to get X job, you need Y and Z experience. And it's hard to get that experience without ever having an entry level job or internship. And so, yeah, I definitely did feel like I had no real, you know, experience in that uh, kind of part of journalism and opinion writing, but it turned out really great. And I owe a lot to the, the great people at Deseret and the people on my team who mentored me and took me under their wings. Um, but yeah, I, I think imposter syndrome is a real thing. And this feeling that maybe we're not enough or we don't know this, or we're not old enough or whatever. And one of the best pieces of advice I got early in my time at BYU was just to take advantage of any opportunity you're given. Like, don't say no to, to any opportunity. It's better to overcommit than have to pull back later than, than be stuck wishing you would have done something. And so Uh, I took that to heart. And I think for most people my age, if not everyone, we're kind of in the same boat of trying to figure out what we want to do, who we want to be. um, And the best way to get there, I think, in a lot of ways is just trying. And if you fail, so what?
0: How many, um, do you know off the top of your head, how many pieces you've written for Deseret?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure. I have no idea.
0: (laughs) It's not under 10, though. It's more than 10. It's more than 10, for sure. Do you have a favorite one, Samuel? Oh
1: man, that's a great question. Oh. One that that comes to my head initially, maybe just because this time of year and I'm thinking about it, um, was last summer as Pioneer Day approached. I wrote a story in thinking about um, my own pioneer ancestors and why I celebrate Pioneer Day. Um, And at the time, the very serious refugee crisis, both in Ukraine coming out of Ukraine and coming out of Afghanistan. And we're still dealing with that globally, as well as in other parts of the world in Syria and elsewhere. Um, And I wrote about how kind of this pioneer ethos that we often think of being a spiritual heritage for all of us, whether or not we have, you know, pioneer ancestry by blood, but this idea that we should be welcoming and we should be loving and we should accept refugees and immigrants in our communities as our neighbors and our brothers and sisters, which they are, uh, that really stems from this pioneer heritage, and so that was something that was moving to me. And I wrote it at a time when I was just starting my my honors thesis research at BYU, which also deals with Latter Day Saint emigration um, in the nineteenth century. And so it was kind of all these themes converged to something that I could write that was very personal. And as a politics reporter, you don't write very much. That's things that are personal um, or close to your heart, and that certainly was. So uh, that sticks out. Maybe just because Pioneer Day is coming up here in a in a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, this podcast will be out before Pioneer Day. Uh, Talk about, um, for people that aren't familiar with what a sociology major is, and I'm sort of could probably give that a college try to define that. Tell our listeners what, I know what a Spanish major is, um, but talk about what being a sociology major is.
1: Yeah. If you ask five sociology majors, (laughs) what sociology is, you probably get five. That's (laughs) Five different responses. Um, I love sociology. I, I think in its simplest terms, a lot of people will say, oh, it's psychology, but for groups, instead of setting individuals or setting groups. And I think that's fair, but I think it goes a lot deeper than that. Sociology to me is the science of society. It understands how society functions, what are the ills and the problems that plague us as peoples, as groups, um, and then what are the potential solutions to those same those same problems or ills? And so to me, it was a very interesting way of, of viewing the world around me, uh, both my community being you know, my B- BYU or my apartment complex or my ward, but more broadly to my city and my state and my country or my world. And I, this last sociology course I took at BYU was a, a course on the sociology of citizenship where we studied. What is citizenship? When we say that word, what do we mean? Both in kind of a legal sense and also in a social sense. Um, and I was introduced to this concept of being a global citizen, thinking beyond kind of the legal framework in which we often think of citizenship and instead of thinking of it as something that, that binds us together as, as humans, as people. Uh, and I think a lot of sociologists would resonate with that idea because that's something we think about a lot is what does it mean to have a global community that deals with issues and challenges and how do we work through those by following, um, in whatever case we can, scientific rigor and scientific methods that are specific to the social sciences. So it's a lot of fun. I love it so
0: much. Talk about um, how you became, and I don't even know that you were the student commencement speaker for the full graduation at BYU and you probably have better vocabulary, but talk you could name what that is correctly for our listeners and who's invited to that, but you could also talk about how you were selected.
1: Yeah. um, Graduation is just a lot of pomp and circumstance and we have way too many meetings and ceremonies, Uh, but how BYU does it is they have, and a lot of universities follow the same model, but they have a university wide commencement, which is a meeting with, or a, a ceremony with all of the graduates, be they undergrads or doctorate students or master's students. So everyone that graduates can come and bring family. Um, and BYU always has a general authority at that one that speaks, or another speaker. And then every college has their own graduation. So mine was the College of Family and Social Sci- F- Family Home and Social Sciences, and we had our own convocation. That's just the majors from our college. Um, and so all of those have different speakers. And how BYU does it is every year for the university commencement, the the big one in the Marriott Center, they invite one of the honors program students to speak. And the process was pretty straightforward. They basically just asked a lot of us or all of us honors graduates to like submit a CV of things we had done at BYU or come in an interview or whatever. Um, So I went through that whole process and kind of forgot about it. And then um, kind of out of the blue, a couple of weeks later, was just invited to speak. And so I can't really speak to what the decision-making process was or how they selected somebody, but it was a cool experience. And, the, the thing that, that I kick myself about is obviously the reach of this talk. I'm grateful for so many people who weren't there that have been able to listen to it online, but I had after that, you know, my college convocation, which was one of 14 around campus. And then there was an honors convocation and all these ceremonies. Each one had other student speakers who did a phenomenal job of sharing their own kind of university experience or things that they would leave with their graduates. And I wish we could get transcripts of all of their talks as well, because the things that. Uh, they spoke about were really, really powerful and moving to me as, and maybe it's just because I'm a graduate since so that time of my life. But uh, yeah, it was a powerful week for me. Um, and I think for all of the graduates or anyone that's gone through that process of graduating from any school.
0: Um, we could put the, t- the actual speech in now at the podcast, or you could give us more background before the speech or after the speech on just why you chose to talk about this subject?
1: Yeah. Uh, Let's listen to it. How about that? And then we can talk about it more.
0: All right, listeners, we're going to listen to this speech.
1: Good morning, Sister and President Worthen, Sister and President-elect Reese. Mrs. and Reverend Dr. Teal, Sister and Elder Christofferson, and other distinguished guests and faculty. And to my fellow graduates, congratulations. Look at us. Uh (laughs) Who would have thought? Uh, A few weeks ago, I, I went to the library here on campus to pick up a book I'd reserved, and they brought me a stack of books, which definitely weren't mine, but the little reservation slip had my name on them. And I was confused and the library employee was confused. And near simultaneously, we looked at each other and we realized there must be another Samuel Benson on campus. And we laughed and I took my books and promptly forgot about it. But then this happened again and again. And on that third time, I thought, okay, this has got to end. So I did the only logical thing, which is to grab a little post-it note from the counter and scribble, dear Samuel Benson, if you're reading this, I want to meet you. Signed, Samuel Benson. <laughs> and uh, I added my phone number to the bottom of the note and, and put it in the book. And he's never called me. <laughs> but Samuel Benson, if you're out there, please call me. <laughs> now, why do I share this? Um, because I was reminded of it just now when President Worthen announced that the next speaker would be Samuel Benson. And I had this sinking feeling, what if I'm the wrong Samuel Benson? <laughs> and I, I joke about this, but I'm, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have felt something similar. Maybe this morning when we put on our gowns and our, our hats and we looked in the mirror, we thought, there's no way that I am really a college graduate. I know for me, when I took Stats 121 for the second time my freshman year, <laughs> I felt like I'd never graduate. Apologies to President Reese. Behavioral scientists have called this the imposter syndrome, this fear of being exposed as a fraud, of doubting whether we are enough, whether we are ready for this next chapter of our lives. My message today is that we've made it this far for a reason. We've earned a place in this body of graduates. All that we've done over the past several years has earned us membership and earned us belonging in the BYU class of 2023. But I do want to mention one other form of membership that I think is even more important, membership in Zion. This form of membership is indifferent to our GPA, our major, or our minor, or any of the other things on which we tend to hyperfixate during our college years. At this university, in addition to the academic intricacies of our disciplines, we've learned the importance of building Zion, both as a concept and as a literal community. Zion is the beloved community, the pure in heart, Its mission, as described by the Reverend Dr. Andrew Thiel, is this. We need to show that whoever somebody is, whatever their color, creed, background, gender, sexual orientation, you name it, the Lord loves them. I remember the first sociology course I took here before I declared it as my major. It was a course on race and ethnicity taught by Dr. Jacob Rue. Yeah, I love Dr. (laughs) Rue. We spent the semester on a huge project, a racial equity inventory, where we surveyed the university in just about every way we could think of. We studied demographics, we poured over syllabi, we interviewed students of color, we even took notes of artwork hanging in public areas around campus. And I came away from this project with two major impressions. The first being that this campus is full of remarkable individuals whose experience and stories should be heard. And second, if we are serious about this whole idea of building Zion, we need to make room for everyone because Zion isn't Zion without all of us. That is essential if we're to create the community BYU's statement on belonging describes, a community whose hearts are knit together in love. Now among us today are disciples who've spent their time at BYU in this exact pursuit and I'll name just a few. I think of Gideon George who came to this university to play basketball but will leave both with a diploma and with over 14,000 pairs of shoes to donate to people in his home country of Nigeria. I think of Nori de Gomez-Baibi, who upon arriving to BYU, <laughs> who upon arriving to BYU found there were few on-campus resources for undocumented students. So she worked with the International Student and Scholar Services to create them. She sits today in this crowd as the first in her family to graduate from university. And lastly, I think of Quincy Taylor, the founder of BYU's On Campus Cybersecurity Student Association, who spent her time on campus empowering women to enter a field where nine in 10 workers are male. And I'd certainly be remiss if I didn't mention our outgoing president, Sister Worthen, who've given nine years of their lives to bettering this campus community. Someday when historians write about this chapter in BYU history, I'm sure they'll add an exclamation point. Their tenure will be remembered for many things, but I remember specifically the the first devotional I attended my freshman year, and President Worthen gave this charge. He told us to see ourselves not as isolated individuals pursuing our own career goals, but as part of a covenant community gathered to realize our full potential as children of God. On that note of career goals, Hugh Nibley once wrote, in the Zion of God, where there is no sickness, there will be no more doctors. Where there is no litigation, there will be no lawyers. And he, con- he continues to list about every field in which all of us will get degrees today. Though I do know he didn't mention sociologists like myself. <laughs> Probably implying most of us would already be unemployed. <laughs> But but what are we to make of this? How do we reconcile this claim that in Zion we won't need doctors or lawyers or whatever else? And yet we've spent four years here and however many more to come training to be exactly these things. Now, we can all reach our own conclusions, but I offer one possible interpretation. At this university, we enter to learn and then we go forth to serve. The labor in Zion labors for Zion, not for money. In Zion, we don't call each other lawyers and doctors. We call each other sister and brother. I recently stumbled upon a quote I've come to love written by a British visitor to Utah in 1892. The people of Utah, he wrote, will not tolerate either a beggar or a millionaire within their borders, but devote all their surplus to the building up of Zion. That is our mission to not get caught up in the allures of the world, but to use the surplus of skills and talents and abilities we've developed at BYU to build Zion. This Zion will be one of diversity and of peace, one of everlasting joy. And unlike many of the world's other highly selective universities, which define their prestige in part by how many students they exclude each year, Zion defines itself in terms of inclusion, a mission to allow all to find belonging without money and without price. I wish to leave you all with two questions. First, how has attending BYU shaped us in ways that other universities would have not? And second, how can we in turn shape the world in ways that other university graduates cannot? We've all had unique experiences here, and our answers will vary. But we sit together today as graduates 7,000 strong, with distinct skills and experiences and identities, some that we brought with us to this campus and others that were refined or developed here. We need all of them to build Zion. In Zion, there are no imposters and no frauds. We all belong. As we leave today, the charge this university gives us is precisely this, to use what we've learned to serve the world, to love our neighbor, to be peacemakers, and to labor for Zion. Class of 2023, thank you and congratulations.
0: Okay, Um, terrific speech. Um, I could give you a lot of comments about the speech. I love um, Zion. I love belonging. There were some incredible phrases in there. Like Zion's, Zion defines its mission by inclusion. Um, But talk more about and this was a really moving speech, and I listened to it twice, Samuel, before I prepared for this podcast. I had read it before when you gave it, and that's what caused me to want to reach out and have you on the podcast. But it is a per- terrific application of the gospel of Jesus Christ in creating Zion and belonging, one of the very best speeches I've heard. And it um, gives me hope for the future of our community and the f- future of the world um, for the f- for um, the vision you have, and now I'm talking more and I want you to talk. I noticed how you lifted the voices of others. Even, even before you talked about your own speech, you just talked about the students that gave incredible speeches and in other parts of BYU and wish all those could be read. But a big part of your um, speech was, it wasn't all about Samuel Benson. It was about other people that had less privilege and less voice and you elevated their voices and the work you did at BYU that you referenced was a lot about their stories. So I'll just turn it over to you to talk wherever, however you want to talk.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, Richard. Um, in thinking about why I chose to speak on this topic, uh, as I was this, as a writer, I thought, okay, writing a speech is simple. You know, this is a thousand words. That's a third of a lot of the stories I write. I can do this easy, um, but the, the tough thing for me is when when I'm writing something that I, I feel strongly about, it's really hard for me to start writing. I kind of have to sit with it for a couple of days and think about where I want to start. And, and this was the hardest thing I ever wrote. I, just, I was at a loss and didn't know what I wanted to write about. And I wrote a draft of a speech uh, that was on a completely different topic. And I shared it with a couple of people that I love that I knew would give me honest feedback, my mother, my girlfriend. And they wrote back and they said, this is good, but like, I don't think this is it. And I I really appreciated that because I felt the exact same. So I was like, okay, I need to start from scratch. And I asked myself two questions. One question was, what have I learned at BYU? Or how has BYU shaped me in a way that I can share? And then the second question was, I'm not the only one graduating today. There's 6,800 others. And so what is a message that will resonate with all of us that we can all take together out from this commencement ceremony to the world, wherever we go. And as I was thinking about my time at BYU, I kept remembering, I was trying to think of the transformative experiences or the memories or the things that stood out. And I didn't think about um, classes I took or lectures or devotionals or... A lot of those were very moving and touching, but the things that I remembered were kind of the really difficult things that our campus was going through while I was there. Um, I thought about, you know, my freshman year, there was uh, the change to the honor code, to the language of the honor code, which led to a lot of whiplash, a lot of pain for a lot of my fellow students. Uh, The Black Lives Matter movement led to a lot of questions about how we should honor uh, different women and men in church history and their roles and contributions to university. Um, the tensions and the questions and, and that that dealt with the LGBTQ students on campus continued and, and continue as do the questions about race and belonging. And those were things that kind of pervaded my whole experience at BYU. Was were these questions and people around me who? Uh, who were most affected by these questions that that were really struggling and dealing with things and so as I was thinking about what I could share what I should talk about I just kept thinking about those people um, and the people to me on campus who I felt were examples of what it meant to be a byu student what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and what it meant to to build Zion which really is our mission on this earth so I felt whatever I talk about even if it's not directly about those themes, I need to find a way to honor these people and 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 make them feel that this speech or this pulpit um, is shared by them. And so, as I was writing, I you know I, I had been reading Hugh Nibley's Approaching Zion, uh, which if if any listeners haven't picked that up, uh, you should do it. It's a heavy lift; it, it weighs like eight pounds. It's a fat <laughs> book, but it's it's well worth the read. Um, and Hugh Nibley, whatever you think about him, does a fantastic job of helping us center Zion beyond just kind of this ambiguous spiritual goal to a very temporal, very real concept. It's not that we're building Zion in the next life and Jesus will come and fix everything. It's We have a job of creating Zion here in this life. And that to me was a concept that I knew, but I don't think I really understood it before reading Cunibli's words. So anyway, that kind of made me think, okay, maybe Zion is what I need to talk about. Then I thought about the experience I had at BYU uh, and I realized what I've witnessed at BYU, what I've experienced is kind of a laboratory of of what it means to build Zion. And I don't want to go too far tangentially here, but maybe a quick story that illustrates this, that I didn't share in my speech, but I wrote a longer essay for Wayfair um, where, where I mentioned this. I was in a, I, I had a good friend, my freshman year named Don, who, uh, he was a senior. He was bright, brilliant, ended up going to Cornell law school, just graduated, um, from Cornell. And at the time he, uh, was involved with the black student union and was doing really great work on campus and helping us. Uh, I, he helped start the anti-racism group or, or had a, a role with that club and a couple other things. Anyway. During the summer of 2020, with the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of people started thinking, okay, how do we honor people like Abraham Smoot, who was a benefactor to the university, who did a lot of wonderful, great things, both for the university and for the territory of Utah, both politically and reg- religiously and in the education sphere. But he also owned slaves and uh, had a, a pretty prominent role in, in in promoting slavery in Utah territory. It's like, how do, how do we balance these two tensions, right? Of, of the good that he did and the, the really awful things that kind of stemmed from his legacy. And there were real pushes to take his name off of the administration building at BYU, which is the big building on the North End of campus that houses the university president's office and other administrative offices. Uh, and Don and the other officers of the Black Student Union came up with this really novel idea and approach where they wrote a letter to President Nelson and to the NAACP and to others where they laid out this vision they had of a university that didn't have names on the buildings. And when I heard this, I was like shocked. I was like, we just take off the names of all the buildings, all the profits. And and, and, and they explained in this letter that BYU at, at present has a policy where new buildings don't get names. They just have generic titles. Like the Maxwell Institute is in this brand new building on the West end of campus called the Westview Building. And the Life Science Building and the Engineering Building are called Life Science Building and Engineering. So they're just very pragmatic, practical names. And they said, why don't we just retroactively apply this policy to all buildings and then we avoid this tension in the future of all of these people have faults as we all do. What's the justification for keeping one name and taking another off? And I was really uncomfortable by this. Uh, Two of my great grandfathers have names on campus. I'm a a Nepo baby in that sense, I guess. It didn't help me get into BYU, I promise. But like, like these are men and women of God who are honored on our campus, many of them, who did really great things to build the kingdom and did we just are we discrediting their their work by taking their names off? That was kind of the thought process, right? And I called Don and, and to Don's credit, and I'll always be so grateful for him, to him for this, uh, that he just listened and he listened to my concerns and listened to my viewpoint. And then he explained to me and said, Look, like I just want to share with you where we're coming from. And he said that, that the women and men who built BYU and who have built the church were inspired, were good people, who did great things. And he said, it's great that we have a lot of their names on the facades of our building, but just as important, if not more important, is making sure that every person that walks under those names into the doors of those buildings feels like they belong and that they have a home and that the education they're getting is an environment that's safe for them and welcoming for them. And that really uh, changed how I how I viewed it. and And I never, you know, I I was still working through my own questions and my own things with this whole process, but I realized that dawn in that moment was coming from this, from a place of pure love, of Christ-like love, as were all the members of the Black Student Union who were trying to build a campus that was built on belonging, that was built on hope and love for all people, regardless of ethnicity or sexual orientation or whatever, that they could come to BYU and get an education and do so in a safe and welcoming environment. Anyway, so I was, as I was thinking about my talk, it was experiences like that that came coming back to my mind of, of, of people doing little things on campus without trying to get any recognition or anything like that. But we're doing their part to build a Zion community in this kind of laboratory of Zion. Because if, if we should be able to to work on building Zion anywhere, it should be at a place like BYU that, that really pr- pr- prizes itself on being a place of both academic rigor and spiritual strength. Um, and that's what I saw in a lot of friends that I mentioned in the talk. I didn't mention Don in the talk, but he's he's definitely one of those that I look up to and respect so deeply.
0: Love that. And l- listeners will link to not only Samuel's speech in the podcast notes, but also, also his Wayfair article, if you want to read that. And I haven't read Hughes Nippley's book, but I love where you frame that up, where it's Zion isn't the next life, it's this life. That's helpful for me. Talk about, if you want to, these, I think there were three, Gideon Nori, I'm saying um, her name right, and Quincy, mm-hmm. if you want to talk, and Dr. Um, Jacob Rue, I'm saying his name right. He's a good friend, <laughs> but I've never pronounced his name out loud, if Roo, you want. That's correct. <laughs> um, and um, if you want to talk any more about that in your decision to sort of elevate these voices of examples. Sure.
1: Um, it just felt natural. I, I like I mentioned, I think a commencement speech, or really any speech where you're speaking to your peers, um, your job is is to share that podium with all of them. And we didn't have time to go through sixty eight hundred names, but if we could have that 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 would have been the place, right? That day was a celebration of my fellow graduates. Um, and the goal was simply to to recognize that there were a lot of people, a lot of people in that crowd. Um, who have spent their time at BYU doing the right work, building Zion. Uh, so yeah, those three are friends. Gideon, um, basketball player, did a, a phenomenal job for two seasons at BYU after transferring in, or maybe I think it was here three seasons actually after transferring. But um, did a lot of good stuff on the court, but off the court. I mean, to, to get fourteen thousand pairs of shoes That's to true. donate to your home country of Nigeria, and he was doing this like he was having these shoe drives outside the games. So he'd be inside warming up and people, fans, students, alumni would be showing up to the Marriott Center with, you know, bags full of lightly worn or brand new Nikes or whatever and throwing them in these boxes. And so he, he's, he's taking a strength of his, which is basketball and using it in a way to bless lives of others. So I think it's just so powerful. Um, Noriadnis is a re- a really dear friend. She's in the sociology department as well. And, uh, just her example of, of showing up to BYU, she transferred to BYU, um, and then realizing that there was a need for, for students like her who maybe didn't feel safe or didn't have resources that they needed to be successful. Uh, the church, when it comes to immigration, in a lot of ways has kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. right? You, you can be undocumented living in the United States and you can be baptized. You can hold leadership callings or hold callings in the church. You can serve a mission. Um, and at BYU, ideally it would be the same, right? That, that your legal status uh, shouldn't have an effect on your ability to receive a world-class education. Uh, and we owe a lot to her for the work that she did to make sure that was the same for everyone. And then Quincy is a dear, dear friend. Um, she's phenomenal. She's going to Cambridge this fall wow. to study cybersecurity. But it's not just that she's brilliant, but that she used that brilliance to empower other women in her major in cybersecurity. She's on this, she goes to these cybersecurity competitions around the, a con- around the country. And this year, to just to show how male dominated this field was, this year they go to the regional competition. And I can't remember how many people were on the BYU team, maybe there was 12. And there were two girls. And because that was so like astronomically huge, this proportion of 12 to two women, that they called it the girls team just because no one had seen a team with that many women. So this is Quincy. She's in this this industry that's just completely dominated by males and yet is, is doing all she can to promote her fellow women in this field to, to have opportunities, both at BYU. And then now as they go off to do amazing things, uh, protecting our, our country from uh, cybersecurity threats, they're, they're doing amazing things.
0: Uh, I just love those three stories. Um, and um, you're bringing using your position of privilege in the speech to elevate their stories. And I think you'd love to elevate everybody's story. Um, Listeners, you know, Samuels used the term undocumented worker. And I remember using the term illegal alien maybe 10 years ago. And I was reading a book by Brene Brown about how we use dehumanizing terms. And that increases the risk that we'll be unkind. Or I think she even talked about Nazi Germany. Dehumanizing to the Jewish people to the point where people felt justified in their actions. And illegal alien, I hate to even use that term out loud, is a dehumanizing term. No one, no human being should be referred to as an alien. And I love the much more compassionate, thoughtful term that I think Christ would use. Certainly treat the um, person you referenced just the way you have and BYU has. And, and so I love that term, and I think that's a question for all of us to to think, because I'm repenting publicly for the term I use to describe that group, and I became aware of the things Samuel just said about the church. Um, yes, they're undocumented workers, uh, but the church doesn't deport them, doesn't not call them on missions, doesn't not give them church calling. So it's kind of back to this tension that you felt your whole life at BYU, and that was a great example of that you shared of building names and and having that honest conversation, but BYU is kind of in the middle of the tension of a lot of these issues. And I, in your age group, that's kind of grown up with that tension and having to navigate that. You're going to take your lived experiences, the principles you've learned, to sort of live with that temp- tension and take that into your lives, into your church assignments, into your families. And I think it's going to be really helpful um, because it's not just theoretical. You've had to live this and. And it's sort of the tension. And I don't think tension's a bad thing. I'm not sure the goal is to eliminate tension. I think the, the goal is to share it, do the things that Samuel talks about in his speech in this podcast, is to find principles of Zion. I've shared this story before, but I've been sharing it more. And then I want Samuel to talk. My wife and I, when we were dating at BYU. That was a long time ago. Samuel, like... 1988, um, 35 years ago. And we found out while we were dating, we were in different political parties. And we are still in different political parties. That has not changed. And now that our kids are all adults, we're not trying to keep score of where our adult children end up. And we're not trying to convert each other to our respective political parties. We're just, we like it that we're different that way. And we think that makes our marriage stronger. And we can have respectful conversations about political differences without sort of the vitriol that can be present. So to me, that's part of a Zion element in our marriage is um, we're unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we have differences there and we live with that tension. And so um, I just think that's part of the reality. I think Zion is not sameness, but Zion has taken all these beautiful differences that you highlight in your speech. and so that we can lift the hands of others. Um, share more. Just what's I'd like you to just keep talking about things around on your mind. You could talk about your future. You could talk about feedback from the speech. Anywhere you want to go, Samuel?
1: Sure. In thinking about feedback from the speech, I've been really overwhelmed by a lot of the people mm-hmm. who have shared ways in which the speech spoke to them or touched them. And uh, nothing in the speech was original. I mean, all of the themes or the, the 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 ways that I spoke about Zion are, are things that I learned from Hugh Nibley or Patrick Mason in his book Restoration or so many other sources uh, that speak about about Zion openly. I mean, Elder Christofferson was the general authority speaker at the commencement ceremony, and he gave he's given two fantastic speeches on Zion in the last decade. Um, and this is something that I think a lot of us having the for, in the forefront of our minds, especially with President Nelson's invitation to be peacemakers. If you're building Zion, you're being a peacemaker. Um, you, you you can't do one or the other without without doing the other, and so that's powerful. But yeah, in terms of feedback, the the really only negative feedback I've received, and this is really interesting actually, is I've had multiple people um, reach out to me and and want to have just open conversations because they're confused thinking that almost I was uh, presenting a Zion that was too inclusive. Um, and listeners might cringe by hearing that, but but their thinking was that the celestial kingdom um, has kind of a standard, right? That that to enter the temple, there is a certain standard. And if saying that Zion should include all of us, that Zion isn't Zion without all of us, that we're kind of defying the standard that that the Lord has set. And and I, I get that. And I, I get that critique um, or that, that that questioning. But I, I feel a need to clarify when they say that. Because when I say we need to build Zion, I'm not saying we need to build the celestial kingdom. Uh, we don't have the capacity to even imagine what heaven is like much like less to build it. Our job isn't to focus on that. It's to build a community now that's pluralistic. That has differences, whether they be political, like you mentioned, or over any other kind of differential line, but that are unified in one characteristic. The only characteristic or the only perhaps barrier to entry a requirement for entry that the Lord gives to membership in Zion is to be pure in heart. Uh, So anyone who is pure in heart can form part of Zion. And our job isn't, we're not the judges in Israel here. We, we don't have the ability to distinguish who's pure in heart and who's not. Our job is simply to allow anyone who desires to form part of Zion to be part of Zion. Patrick Mason, I mentioned his book, Restoration, which I think is very profound. It's short, but it's a great read. And he gives this analogy of a big field and that God is kind of the, the master of the vineyard here. Um, and all of us have a different role to play in this field. And he compares it to different faiths that Judaism and Buddhism and Taoism and our faith, we all have kind of these different corners of the field that we are uniquely equipped to cultivate. And then in the last days, Christ will kind of bring this garden together. I love that analogy. And I think we take it a step further and look at it individually. I think all of us have different skills and different talents that we uniquely can bring to building Zion. And it's not our job to tell anyone that you don't have a place here. You don't have a role here. Uh, like Paul said, the eye can't say to the foot, we have no need for thee. We all have a role in creating the body of Christ. Um, Howard Debra Hunter used to say that we should, we should survey large fields and cultivate small ones. And President Hinckley used to quote him on that and say that the the idea there of serving large fields and cultivating small ones is that we should get a a glimpse of the breadth and the depth and the importance of the work that the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ is leading forth today. It's huge. It's monumentous. But our job isn't to just cultivate that field. It's to cultivate a small corner of the field, um, to lift where we stand, to figure out what can we do in our individual circle to build Zion? And recognize we're part of this huge work that goes even beyond our faith. I mean, we should be linking arms with our sisters and brothers of any faith or of no faith who are pure in heart. Um, but it's not our job to unite everybody. It's our job to to focus on those people around us or the things that are kind of within our our realm of influence. And that, to me, uh, that's a much longer winded response than I would give these people that you know would critique my idea of an inclusive Zion. But that's how I view it. You know. Um, God isn't saying to be part of Zion, you have to have a temple recommend or God isn't saying to be part of Zion, you have to do X, Y, and Z. He's saying you have to be pure in heart. And then in Doctrine and Covenants 45, he explains in a revelation to Joseph Smith that Zion is the most peaceful place on earth or will be in the last days. It'll also be the most diverse place on earth. It's the same thing in Isaiah that we read um, put on your, your beautiful garments, right? Ex- expand your stakes and enlarge your board or strengthen your stakes and enlarge your borders. We can't strengthen Zion without making it more inclusive, without expanding uh, the borders of it, making it more broad, um, including more people. And so that's how I feel about, about Zion. It's a beautiful concept to me. Um, it's, of, of all the doctrines in the church or all the ideas in the church, there are a few that give me much hope in terms of focusing on the temporal life, the temporal world um, as building Zion, because that's our mission in this life. Uh, and it's something that I, that I love and feel strongly
0: about. That was a terrific segment. I'm glad you addressed that question that you got and others may have that question that are listening right now or, wondering how to navigate that in their own congregations as they try to build Zion and may have some questions in that lane. And that was a terrific answer. Yeah. um, That's consistent with what I feel listeners. You had some really quotes, wonderful quotes I've never heard before from like president Hunter. And you've done a lot of due diligence to understand this, this concept in the history of our church, Samuel. I like just the ideas, listeners, we're called to be gatherers, not sifters. I love the idea that the gate is wide at the congregation level. There's no belief or behavior or feel welcome or a sense of belonging at the congregation level. And there is, like you say, for the temple, there's a belief in behavior. But I think Zion isn't bringing that, that culture of what you need to do to get in the temple, into the congregation or into the family or into our friend group and pure in heart. And I think we'll get more you know into the celestial kingdom or into the temple as we create the Zion of um, this deep sense of belonging and accepting people for where they are and in their individual journeys and and people respond better when they feel loved and accepted and understood and and not judged. your point that we're not called to be judges. Um, we're not called to be sifters, we're called to be gatherers. I think at the gathering of Israel that President Nelson talks about not only that family in Boston that you help teach that may or may not have been documented, but our own members, um, your fellow students at BYU and your work to help them feel a sense of belonging. And part of that is sitting with, like you have with this fellow Don, I think his name, and just sitting with him in the realities of his situation and being present and being willing to listen to his story and validating how he felt. I think that is a helpful principle of ministering. It's just a great segment. Do you have any more thought? I have a question for you. And if you have any more thoughts, I don't know if there's examples in the life of Christ's ministry that resonate with you as you're talking about belonging, creating Zion, or, or anywhere you want to go next, Samuel.
1: That's that's a great question. Um, in thinking about Christ, I think he was the champion of everything we aspire to be, Uh but particularly the, this idea of building Zion. Uh, the, the idea that, that the Savior, the Messiah, was come to liberate Israel um, and to free them from Roman oppression, uh, a lot of those ideas uh, didn't come to fruition in a, in a temporal sense during his life. But he certainly was was involved in, in offering them a spiritual liberation. And so much of that came by changing how they viewed the way that society taught them to view their neighbor. People who grew up in the time of Christ in his uh, community, in his area were taught that uh, Pharisees were one thing and Sadducees were one thing and Romans were one thing and prostitutes were one thing and lepers were one thing and Christ consistently and over and over and over again spent time challenging people to reconsider how they view their neighbor and what they viewed their neighbor to be. Uh, and the Good Samaritan, I think, of all the parables is the best example of this. But I think, you know, just last week in Come Follow Me, we were studying about the Last Supper. And as I read, I was moved by, by viewing the Last Supper and then Christ washing his disciples' feet, not as separate events, but as part of one lesson that he was teaching them. The last commandment he gave them was that they should love one another as he loved them, Right. Uh, the last ordinance or the last thing that he he taught them uh, by example was was this sacrament where he's he's offering them a symbolic way to remember that him. And today when we've articulated the sacrament, we're remembering our baptismal covenant, which in part is to keep his commandments, his last one to love one another, and then to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those who stand't even comfort in, in, in simplistic terms to build Zion with the people around us. And then the next thing that he does after they break bread and drink wine is he kneels down and he offers the most meek form of service that he could symbolically based on his time and his culture, something that a servant would do to his master. And he teaches them that I'm not here just to lecture you that you should love one another. That's your job. But I'm going to show you exactly that the service that you give needs to be the most humble, the most meek, and yet the most individual that you possibly can. And that to me is as powerful an example of building Zion as I could possibly conjure up. Um, The savior of the world on the eve of his atonement, where he'll give his life and suffer for all of the mistakes and the way that we mess up around the people that we love or the people that we don't love. He he atoned for them too. Uh, And yet he's there showing them how to serve and how to love. And that to me is very powerful. So that's a great question. I appreciate you asking that because I don't think I'd really thought of, of specific ways in which Christ built Zion, but I think, I mean, he was the quintessential Zion man. He, he taught us what it means to build Zion. And that's why he keeps commanding us even today through his living prophets that that should be our mission.
0: You have a great answer. Very good spontaneous answer. I thought you could handle that question. Um, you could talk about your future, what you want to do professionally. You could talk about this summer. You could continue to talk about the principles in your speech and more thoughts about creating Zion. It's kind of your platform to keep talking, yeah, Samuel. I
1: appreciate that. Uh, and thinking about Zion and kind of what's next for me, I, I'm i in the process of writing a book right now. Um, and I, I had an idea going in what the book was going to be, and now it's kind of shifting. Uh, but But more or less, it focuses on, the church as an institution uh, being built by immigrants and thinking about the first wave of immigration uh, from great Britain in the 1840s and then migration from, from Europe throughout the the 19th century. And then up until today, where it seems that Latter-day Saints over and over are on the forefront of, of issues that deal with American immigration in the United States. So I have a chapter that talks about uh, Senator Hatch's role and being the first to propose legislation to protect dreamers, DACA legislation, despite being a staunch conservative and even socially very conservative. Many people would be surprised by him going to bat for immigrants. Um, I talk about the Utah Compact and the church's stance on immigration 2010, 2011. And also in Arizona, why that all came to be because of a Latter-day Saint in Arizona being very anti-immigrant. And then a Latter-day Saint stake president in Arizona kind of battling him on that and the unique kind of contours of that. I talk about the Trump administration and, and the Muslim bans and how those in many ways reflected the proposed Mormon bans of the 1880s that Grover Cleveland proposed. Um, and I, I dive into kind of these issues over and over, but it's all framed through the stories of individual migrants from these time periods. How did Arizona's stringent immigration laws in 2010 affect a bishop in Mesa? And I write about his story or how did uh, Cleveland's proposed Mormon ban affects a kid that grew up on the Isle of Man and migrated and gets to the United States and his family gets stopped in New York at Castle Garden, the predecessor to Ellis Island, because he's a Mormon, not because of his race, not because they're poor, but because of his religion. They tell him they're going to Utah and that's enough to ban them from entering the country. So I tell these stories and and, and the goal is to kind of... Uh, help the reader and also help myself in the process recognize that migration is something that's as Mormon as, as Jello. It really is this idea that, that God has called people to come to Zion and that he continues to do that, but it's no longer as much a physical migration as it is a spiritual one, right? That isn't to say people still don't migrate for spiritual reasons. Um, really good research out of BYU right now by Jane Lopez and others in the sociology department where they look at spiritual motives for migration. Um, and spiritual migration continues. It's not just a 19th century thing, which I think is important. And on that same note, uh, if you can tell, migration is something I'm really passionate about and it's kind of my my focus in my discipline in sociology. And My honors thesis at BYU dealt with the first waves of immigration that left, that joined the church in England and then came across to Nauvoo and later to Utah between 1840 and 1860. So kind of the first wave of migration that bolstered their early church shortly after the restoration. And my goal was to look at this group and ask the question, why did they migrate? Uh, because a Sunday school manual would say they came for spiritual reasons. They were following a prophet A history book would say England was going through a huge recession and the Irish potato famine and the start of the industrial revolution and 10 million people left England during that decade. And they were just kind of part of this huge efflux. It was all economic. And I wanted to figure out which one of those is true or is something else true, you know? And so I use the methods that we have in sociology of sampling and close reading and coding to to read their journals and to read their autobiographies and their letters and figure out what did they say about the migration process and what did it have to do with why they left. And I came to several conclusions, but the most important of them is that the idea of gathering and of Zion was at the forefront. Before 1847, when the saints go to Nauvoo, so 1840 to 1846, In my sample of 50 accounts, so letters, whatever, autobiographies, 34 of them happened between 1840 and 1846. And a third of those, so I guess 36, a third of those 12 say they're going to America. The rest of them were 1847 to 1860. They're all going to Utah. Not a single one of them mentions America. So you go from 33% of migrants mentioning America in their accounts to 0% which is fairly statistically significant. And what's even more interesting is all of these migrants, although they're going to Utah, which at the time is outside of the, the borders of America, they're getting on ships from England that go to New Orleans, to Boston, to New York, to New, or to, to Philadelphia. So they're coming to American ports. They don't even think about the location. And as I read closely in these, these accounts, I realized that it's because it was a whole kind of paradigm shift in how they viewed Zion. It was no longer, we're going to Nauvoo to the city of Joseph, to this place gathering to the city of Zion. It's, we're going to be with a Zion people. It's not, we're going to a location It's we're going to a community. And that to me was very, very powerful. I realized that immigration for these people was no longer, we're trying to get, you know, to build a city, to this land of milk and honey, uh, to a land where, you know, we'll have economic success but we're going to just we don't care where it is it could be in the driest basin in the western united states that no one else wants we don't care but we're just going to build zion and to be with people and i think that's a legacy that lives on and and they were imperfect they made mistakes their ideas of of what inclusion and and who could be part of zion were different than than what it should be and maybe our perception of zion is skewed as well uh but to me it it definitely lends to to, to a hope and to a, an idea that Zion is much more broad than we like to conceive it to be. And it really should include every single one of God's children.
0: Another terrific segment. It's just moving to think about that. And I love the study of history and it helps us make better decisions to understand the stories of prior people. But I love how you framed it, why people wanted to come here. We wanted to be part of the Zion people and I served my mission in Northwest England where a lot of those people, remember sitting in Liverpool on the banks of that river as many ships departed. Not during my day, I'm not that old listeners, but in the years you reference, I served on the Isle of Man um, and I recognized the sacrifice of those people um, to be part of Zion. And that's just terrific. And I'm not aware that anybody's written a book like that in our faith community. I've heard some of these stories and I've read some journals, but what your work is doing is really neat, unique. And it helps us to understand their vision and their hopes and their personal sacrifices and what we can do then to honor their legacy and their decisions and the principles that motivated them to do the same thing today. It's really powerful. Um, I'm glad you're writing a book, Samuel. Come back on the podcast and tell our listeners about the book when it's out, and so more can connect with it. Um, I try not to tell too much of my story in the podcast. I'm coming out with the third book, listeners, this um, fall. It's Listen, Learn, and Love. That's sort of the name I'm using for everything I do, but the title of the book is Building the Good Ship Zion, and it's sort of this idea that um, Brigham Young. You know, use that a lot. And the idea is this is a, a big ship that can handle diversity on the ship. And um, I might go through seven chapters of different things that we can do to help people feel like they belong on the ship, like um, differences in if you're married, really supporting single people, people with different child situations. Um, like not the ability to have children, Um, people that have had difficult church experiences. I had a therapist write healing from church generated trauma because certain people that have had difficult experiences in our church, but have a fundamental testimony and want to stay on the good ship Zion, but need people that understand that world. So that's just enough. And another chapter, it's a little more lighthearted about um, should we pass the sacrament to the foyer sitters and, we had this big debate as why I say bishops one one training meeting, should we pass the sacrament to the people in the foyer? And we realized the principle was, there's no reason we shouldn't pass the sacrament to the people in the foyer. We're not called to be sifters. And there may be reasons why someone's in the foyer. We ought to do everything we can. And so it's just a principle there that scales to other potential things where we become sifters um, versus gatherers and, We shouldn't restrict people's chance to take the sacrament, in my opinion. There's nothing in the handbook. And part of a principle there is we don't develop new rules that aren't in the handbook that we think is some sort of measuring stick. um, And we sometimes create new rules that um, sift people and don't help people feel welcome. So that's a little bit of a sidetrack. But that's terrific what you're writing. Um, And I love that you have... Um, the gift of writing, the gift of communication, um, really good skills to understand our history and bring that all content forward in a way that helps others. more things you'd like to share, Samuel?
1: I'm excited to read your book. That sounds fantastic uh, and I I do feel like this podcast is an example of of what what it looks like to build science of bringing together people who have uh, all different uh, life experiences or perspectives or feelings allowing them a space to share that, uh, which I think is really powerful. Um, you mentioned earlier this idea of building Zion as like in the here and now and not just after. Uh, and that's something that I've, I've thought about over and over since the talk. Um, I'm entering a career field, which is notorious for being, uh, it has a bad rap in <laughs> media and journalism. And, um, a lot of people would say it's as far as from Zion as you can possibly get. Uh, entering Babylon, some might say. And uh, I, I look forward to uh, finding ways to build Zion in my sphere, whatever that might look like. And I think that's a challenge that all of us face every day is we, we go to work, um, we have different responsibilities in our homes and among our friends and in the church or whatever. And building Zion is something that we just don't do after 5 p.m. Um, it has to be something that that really becomes who we are. And that's exactly why I think uh, President Nelson's call to be a peacemaker is so powerful. Because the invitation isn't, uh, you should be a peacemaker when you're out ministering, or you should be a peacemaker on Sundays when you have to sit next to someone in Sunday school who's been driving you crazy with their Twitter rants this week or whatever. It's you need to be a peacemaker, period. Like that should be your identity. That should be who you be. And that's something that I think is very difficult. It's something that I've struggled with. I think it's something that we've all uh, had successes and failures with at times throughout our lives. But the way that he invited us to do it, I think is very important. It's not that you should be a peacemaker in a vacuum, um, but that you should look for people around you who you've hurt that you need to apologize to. That was the invitation last year, right? And this year that that we should be praying for charity, that this is something that that will only come with the help of our heavenly father. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, this is a call from a, a prophet of the Lord who I sustain and I love and I, I'm grateful for his guidance and his, his love. And so just a, a powerful, powerful talk. I, I heard Patrick Mason speak. Wow, I've given Patrick a lot of shit. Way to go,
0: Patrick. I feel Um, the same way.
1: I heard him speak a couple weeks after uh, President Nelson's talk. And he said, This is one of those talks that I think members of the church will be reading in 50 years. It's kind of a hallmark address. Like we think of, um, you know, beware of pride or talks like that that still get it passed around in elders' quorums or whatnot. And I, I think being a peacemaker is going to become harder and harder the more contentious that the world becomes. There is so much good in the world. and There are so many people pushing for progress and pushing for change and pushing to build communities that, that promote belonging and inclusion for, for anyone. But there's also a lot of contention. And the way that we do that sometimes isn't the most effective way. Um, compromise is hard. Uh, finding agreement is hard. And, and being peacemakers, I think, is really the hallmark and the only way we're going to do it. And thinking about BYU, you mentioned earlier some of the challenges that BYU faces. And I think a lot of that comes naturally um, as being a secular institution, meaning that it's a, a school that teaches science and mathematics and, and the disciplines of the world, some might say, it strives to do so in a spiritual environment. And... If there's not tension at BYU, I think something's wrong. Like there should be this constant tension of how do we balance those two? How do we offer the most rigorous education we possibly can that prepares people to enter the world, yet equips them to grapple with how their faith relates to that in ways that are productive and healthy. And that looks different for every individual. Um, And BYU, like any institution, faces kind of ebbs and flows and procedures and policies and things like that. And my my first couple of years at BYU, just looking around and seeing the pain um, that certain policies caused people, or uh, things that occurred on campus that were really harmful for certain people, for friends, people that I love and care about, it's very easy to to kind of point your attention to the top and saying we need to change X, Y, and Z or. Uh, we need to do all these things and, and I applaud people who who do all they can to build a more inclusive Zion. At the same time, I found that the most effective thing I can do in my sphere is to live to where I stand, you know um, And that's hard and I, I think institutions change slowly and um, institutions institutions change slowly, but I think people, can change quickly. And a lot of us have people around us who, who feel similarly, and, and our job might just be to love the people that we love, to serve the people that we can serve, to build Zion in the spheres that we can, um, and then to never lose hope. And uh, that's kind of how I, how I view things. And I'm sure people um, view it differently, and I, I completely respect that. But the call to me to be a peacemaker, to be a laborer for Zion uh, demands me to look outward. And the first people I see when I look outward are the people right next to me. And that's where I want to start.
0: I love you referencing a couple times now, lift where you stand. I think it's a terrific principle is that, I think that's Elder Ukdor's piano talk. Yeah. Um, Like um, that pride talk you referenced, that's one that I'll never forget. Um, but a powerful principle. And I think that's what we do is we do what we can in our circle of influence and the people that are proximate to us. And um, that was terrific. Talk about, you know, you're aware of all the complicated issues historically in our church and currently, um, if that's okay to call them complicated, but yet you have a firm testimony of the church. Will Will you share your testimony with our listeners? They may enjoy hearing from somebody that's kind of understands the complex issues and is not surprised about anything because you understand it um, and the reality of what it's like for some people in our church and still have a firm testimony of the church. Just talk about that if you're okay.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I think we do live in a kind of an interesting time where uh, you have access to anything. Um, any information you want about church history or policy, um, it, it, you can find anything. Uh, doing kind of rigorous balanced research is harder, but um, th- we have access to that too, right? And so we I, I, I think my generation, um, when I say my generation, I'm talking kind of older Gen Z people that are in college right now or... Maybe the same can be said for young millennials, the people below us, but we're, we're dealing with this interesting tension of information overload and having access to everything, but then also having um, kind of a lack of the same, I don't know how to say this. Uh, we just live at an interesting time where it's, it's easy to, to. I'll just focus on what I know. How about that? Um, I have a lot of faith in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I have a lot of love for his gospel and for the covenants that I've made with my Heavenly Father. And for the power that I get through my Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, my testimony is, is built on that. And then my testimony to the church really stems from, from my belief in the book of Mormon and for the powerful experience I've had with the book of Mormon and for the love that I have for the doctrine it teaches me, for the way that expands my view, but more so than anything that I read in the book of Mormon, but the the powerful experience I've had of knowing that it's true. Um, and so when I have questions I doubt, I, that's something I, I, I can't deny. Uh, there are a lot of things, uh, in church history or, or, or policies that, that I don't fully understand. And I think the most difficult part of those is when I see uh, ways that, that people who maybe don't have the same privilege I have are hurt by, by things that don't hurt me because of my circumstance. And, and that leads you to ask, I think anyone that would lead to ask questions like why would God do this? Or why would God tell a prophet this? Or why would a prophet say this? And I've, I've come to, to a simple faith that God loves me and God loves you and God loves everyone. And because God loves us, he respects us deeply. And one of the greatest gifts he's ever given us is our gift of agency. And because he respects our agency so radically and so perfectly that he doesn't coerce, he doesn't force. And that's great when we make great decisions and it's really tragic when we make bad decisions, or when we make, uh, take stances that we don't fully understand or, or really anything. Um, and I've, I've, I've come to lend a lot of grace to, to people that I don't fully understand and spoiler, I don't understand anyone fully. Um, and I love the prophet Joseph Smith. The more I read about him, the more I learn about him, the more I, I, I deeply respect him. There are a lot of questions that I have for him. I'm really excited to meet him on the other side of the veil and get a more full comprehension of certain things that decisions that he made or things that he said or the way that the restoration played out under him. Um, but I extend grace. And I think the same could be said for uh, my view of living prophets and apostles. Um, there are things that I don't understand or comprehend fully um, or that I have to sit with or that make me uncomfortable or that I look about how certain statements or policies affect me versus how they affect other people. And I question and I wonder, Uh, but I'm led back to this fundamental belief in God as a God who grants agency and love. um, And I think it's all tethered there. So I love the church. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm, it hurts me to see so many people my age, uh, including people that I love, um, step away from the gospel because of feeling like they don't belong or people that they love don't belong. And the simple conclusion that I've come to, as I've said before, is that I'm going to do all I can in my sphere to create an environment of belonging and love based on the things in the gospel that bring me a sense of belonging and love um, and try and share that with as many people as I can. So, yeah, in short, my testimony is that, that I love my savior, that I love my heavenly father and that I'm so indebted to his church and to his gospel for providing me a sphere to, to hopefully become a better person and, 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 and serve the people around
0: me. That was a terrific spontaneous segment. Um, I love the phrase led back, where you're aware of the complicated issues. You don't have your head in the sand, Samuel, and most of your peer group doesn't. They're aware of the challenging issues. And you're probably not surprised of anything you're going to learn at this point because you understand church history and where we are on current issues. And um, But you're led back to what you know. And then you, you were use the word tethered there. It's powerful visual imagery. Um, so that's really helpful. I recognize a lot of people that are in a faith crisis um, want to find a way to stay. And I think you help. And I realize some listeners have left the church and some, they feel like they can't stay. But I think a lot want to find a way to stay. And that's really helpful segment. My favorite line from your speech. And listeners, as you may know, I go walking in the morning really early. And this time of year, it's actually not dark at 5 a.m. So I've put my headlamp away for the summer. <laughs> anyway, as I listened to it this morning, um, Zion defines itself in terms of inclusion, a mission to allow all to find belonging. I just love that. I also love little subtle things you do. Um where you, as you mentioned, couples, you always started with Sister and President Worthland, Sister and incoming President Reese, Mr. and Reverend Dr. Teal, Sister and Elder Christofferson, and um, the counselor in our bishop, Rick, who's kind of famous. He's um, the piano guy, Stephen Sharp Nelson, does the very same thing. It's just a subtle thing that he does when he conducts meetings. And I think it sends, it's just, a. it's not an activist thing to do, but I think it just sends I'm not saying everybody needs to do this. Um, but to me, it just sends a message you're sensitive to the culture and you want to do things to help. And that very simple thing, create a feeling of, of Zion or inclusion. You're just kind of aware. Any more thoughts on that or any, there's kind of time for one more segment. So you could take whatever you want to take in this last segment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- no, I, that, there was no yeah, activist intent there or anything. It was just, I think, a, a, a way to show respect. Um, and there are a lot of things that we do kind of out of habit in our church culture um, or broadly uh, that there's really no functional reason to do it like we do it. And so there was, I mean, I didn't think much about that. Yeah. Um, One thing that that I'll say just because it was on my mind because I read it this morning, I'm working as a researcher on this biography that McKay Coppins is writing about Mitt Romney.
0: Yeah, Um, that's right. You and McKay are connected somehow.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic book, largely in part because McKay is such a phenomenal researcher. And uh, there's a portion in the book, and I'm not spoiling anything, so McKay is not going to freak out on me because this was all reported during Romney's presidential run, but um, when Romney was the stake president in Belmont in Massachusetts in the 90s. Uh, It was when the exponent two was kind of gaining steam and there was tension, right, between uh, Salt Lake and perhaps the more progressive feminist members of the stake. And this was reported in the Salt Lake Tribune and later in the Boston Globe, so you can go read about it there. But Romney hosts this meeting with, and he opens it to anyone that wants to come and basically just share complaints or questions or suggestions, and they write kind of three categories, things that they can change, policies that they can change, doctrines that they can't change, or church policies that they can't change, and then things that they can explore, you know, ask an area authority about. And um, whatever you you think about Mitt Romney as a politician or as a person, I think that's a very pragmatic approach to church leadership, but also to faith. Uh, What are the things... That are the church's doctrine as we currently understand it, that it would take a revelation to change or that would take guidance from Salt Lake City to change that I really in my sphere can't touch. Beyond that, what are the policies or the practices that we have that we can you know, adjust or explore? Dealing with, and then beyond that, what are the things that we don't know what category they fit in? It'll take some prayer, or some questioning, or, or talking it with people that would know. Um, and it's funny that this is a political book about a politician who's I've been, you know, in the limelight over the last couple of years, and yet that example to me of someone who's very pragmatic in their faith, a former management consultant and business executive, and that's kind of how he views things. And yet it makes sense to me to kind of break things down to that. And maybe that's not you know helpful to, to some listeners, and that's just fine. But it's it's it is a way how I view little things like perhaps saying sister and brother or sister versus brother and sister. Um that's like, does that hurt anyone or dissuade from anything? No, but um why not change how how we do certain things to to make people feel welcome or or seen or like they belong. And so maybe just in closing, uh, I'll end with that, this idea that there are so many little things we, we think of building Zion as this monumental thing. And I think in the restored gospel, because our mission is so broad, uh, that we want to gather Israel in the last days that we want to be the fulfillment of old Testament prophecy. Uh, there's a lot of pressure sometimes to, to punch above our weight. Um, and sometimes we need to remember that the best things we can do to build Zion are, are in our neighborhood. There's a reason we have wards um, and that we have organizations within those wards to put us as close proximity as we possibly can to people who might be different than us in a lot of ways. Um, and the goal is to serve those people and then to make sure as many people are in those spaces as possibly can be.
0: Thank you, Samuel Benson, for- your work to create Zion, your speech, your personal ministry, who you are and being on this podcast. And on behalf of all of our listeners, you give us hope for the future of our world, our church, our community. And I realize there's a lot of women and men like you, um, some your age, some older, some younger, who have the same vision to create Zion, and it gives me hope. And that's a great thing to be able to give people. You have a great life ahead of you, and you will contribute. In wonderful ways publicly as well as privately in your personal love for people. So this is Samuel Benson and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.